Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 60. It's January 1806 and the British have dispatched a fleet of 61 vessels to Cape Town under the charge of Commodore Home Popham to seize the port. As you've heard, that was after the war between England and France reignited in 1805 after the briefest of lulls. On the 2nd of October 1805, Admiral Nelson overcame the combined French and Spanish fleets at Trafalgar and his victory helped put some of the fears of an invasion of England to rest. But this meant Cape Town and other colonial backwaters faced more ambitious projects. 7,000 troops were going to be deposited on the shores of the peninsula. The fleet had arrived off Los Pars Bay, now called Melbostrand, 25 kilometers northwest of Cape Town. The wild surf was heavy and 36 members of the Highland Brigade drowned that morning when their boat capsized, leading to that quote from Captain Graham last episode where he said all went down singing. Perhaps that's a bit of an exaggeration. They were probably screaming for help, but Graham is infamous for his histrionics, as you're going to hear. The British troops were armed with muskets and their usual regimental colours, including feathers, plumes and pom-poms. Waiting for them was Dutch Governor Janssens, and he was not welcoming. He had 1,700 troops, 1,258 of them regulars, but his problem was all were unreliable. Erratic displays of courage had been the bane of the VOC governor's lives for 200 years, so no surprise there. The mercenaries, the regiment Valdek, were suffering from a dysentery epidemic and were a bit tired of serving the Batavians. The English were far more organised and impressive, so the Valdeks ran away from the fight hoping to be hired by the British in the future, although this was unlikely as they'd proven themselves to be cowards. The Batavian troops were better, consisting of two battalions of infantry along with a squadron of light dragoons and one troop of horse artillery. A few dozen French sailors and marines were also ready for the fight. Few of the Cape Burgers showed up, however, as they were in the middle of their harvest and zero showed up from the eastern frontier, the Zufeld. But eventually 220 Burgers, all mounted, dressed in their blue coats, were going to fight against the British. Most came from the Swellendam district and had acquitted themselves well against the English during the last invasion at Musenberg in 1795. Marching alongside the Burgers were 170 soldiers of the Hottentotscher Lichter Infantry, supported by the Javanese Artillery Corps. These were 50 freed slaves who operated the traditional light Indonesian cannon called Lantakan. 100 other men were used as auxiliaries recruited from a cross-section of Cape Town's cosmopolitan citizens. On the 8th of January 1806, this motley crew had allowed the British to land, then intercepted them as they marched on Cape Town from Melkbostrand. They confronted the huge force on the eastern slopes of the Blaubach, both sides drawing themselves up into traditional European-style lines of battle. General Baird, who led the British, arraigned his army of 4,000 men into two strong columns, and these outnumbered the Batavians by more than two to one. The aim was to smash into the overextended Batavian line and drive them back. The left column consisted of the Highland Brigade, including the 71st, 72nd and 93rd Regiments, and the right was made up of the 24th, 59th and 83rd Regiments. Alongside them, the sailors and marines operated two howitzers and six field guns. And so the Battle of Blaubach began at 5am on the 8th of January, with a cold breeze blowing in from the Atlantic shore. 
By the way, this was the last battle in South Africa fought between regular troops using conventional tactics in the age of the musket. No future battles in the Cape Colony would look anything like this. While the battle was short, lasting about an hour, it permanently altered the regional power balance. It's incredible to think that all it took was an hour of fighting to separate 200 years of Dutch rule from the coming British rule. This was a unique moment. The Batavians held off the first wave of British attackers, although they were being bombarded from the sea because the English ships were firing off salvos. It must have been quite a sight. However, first to run, as mentioned, were the mercenaries, the Valdecks, when they saw the kilted Scots Highland Brigade with fixed bayonets on the way, along with what was described as the demented sound of their bagpipes. The Valdecks sprinted to safety so fast that the pursuing British couldn't keep up, and of course, the fleeing mercenaries opened a big gap in the Batavian line of battle. It wasn't long before the defences disintegrated. Janssens withdrew his regulars while the Cape Colonial forces, the Burgers and the Hottentotsche Lichter infantry, fought on. This would be referred to later as a gallant but vain attempt at halting the British attack. Janssens regrouped his regular troops except for the disgraced and cowardly Valdecks who were cowering and snivelling in safety. Janssens then marched inland over the fortified Hottentots Holland Mountains through what is Sulawari's Pass today. The Batavians had lost 337 killed or wounded, the British 15 dead, 189 wounded. While Janssens prepared for his inevitable mountain showdown, back in Woodstock near Cape Town, the command of the Batavian garrison, Lieutenant Colonel von Popolo, was signing articles of capitulation. That was at 4pm on the 10th of January 1806. Realising that it was futile to continue, Janssen surrendered on the 18th of January and General Baird took over as acting governor. The second British occupation of the Cape had commenced and it took some time before everyone along the frontier were aware of this momentous change. Far away in his Jutenhaeg Landrost office, Captain Alberti was told of this on the 1st of March 1806, six weeks later. The letter was rather abrupt. It informed him that he was dismissed from his post and that he was now a prisoner of war. Damakosa discussed this change but had no idea that the new regime at the Cape was going to bring much hardship and war to their land. At first this wasn't apparent. The Napoleonic Wars had driven England's strategy and London took the Cape to deny France a strategic port. There was no plan to colonise the Cape whatsoever. As Lord Castlereagh, the British Secretary of State for War, had expressed previously, The true value of the Cape to Great Britain is it being considered and treated at all times as an outpost subservient to the protection and security of our Indian possessions. The last thing that the British wanted was to jeopardise their control over Cape Town and the port by sending hundreds of soldiers to the Zürfeld or anywhere along the frontier. The British garrison would number 6,211 by 1809, including a cavalry regiment, five battalions of infantry and detachments of the Royal Artillery and Engineers. So the commander who took the Cape, General David Baird, had headed off shortly after Janssen surrendered to try and seize the region around River Plate in modern-day Argentina. It was an unmitigated disaster, and the survivors of his assault in Africa would have simpered at the news. His unorthodox military adventure led to hundreds of troops dying 
and Baird was court-martialed, then reprimanded. The irony is, had he succeeded in pacifying the Spanish around the river plate, Argentina may well have been a British colony, and there would probably not have been a Falklands War. And on that score, a quick marketing update. Please keep a lookout for the Falklands War podcast, folks. I launched it a couple of weeks ago, as it's the 40th anniversary of the invasion, which took place on the 2nd of April, 1982. Back to our story. At the Cape, the last representatives of a Dutch presence sailed for Holland on the 6th of March, 1807, never to return. None expressed any regret at the permanent loss to their nation of a place which had been unprofitable and a troublesome possession for over two centuries. The rebellious land was now Britain's problem. They immediately renamed the Bataillon Hottentotscher Lichter Infanterie, the Cape Regiment, with its headquarters at Rietvalle, north of Cape Town. All of the soldiers and a handful of non-commissioned officers were Khoisan, mixed race or ex-slaves, while the officers were all white. Almost all the men were married with families and they all disliked service when it meant heading far away from their loved ones. The British began to rely very heavily on these men who were excellent sharpshooters. They were good military escorts and trackers and guides. The military recruiters then headed off to the farms to hire even more as wagon drivers. Khoisan and Khoikhoi were regarded as the best wagon drivers in Africa, better than the Boers, and this annoyed the farmers who relied on their services. The British, therefore, weren't off to a very good start if they were worried at all about hearts and minds, and of course they weren't. The Khoisan wagon drivers became indispensable for military transport and supply operations. Meanwhile, the missionaries James Reed and Johannes van der Kemp were made aware of the arrival of their new masters, and at first the two thought of it as an act of God in their favour, and just in time. They had been driven out of Bethelsdorp during the Third Frontier War, and by Janssen's, and since then had been banned from returning to their home near Alcoa Bay. Both had begun to look for a ship to take them to Madagascar to establish a new mission there. Remember, the Boers and the authorities hated them. They were teaching blacks to read and write, and had become a bone of contention when it came to work. Both the Boers and Cape officials said that the missionaries were creating a bolt hole for errant Khoikhoi and Khoisan slaves to use in order to escape work on the frontier farms. Both Van der Kemp and Reed looked forward with great joy to the prospect of returning to their beloved Bethelstorp. General Baird allowed this and also removed the Batavian ban on teaching the Khoikhoi to read and write. James Reed was overjoyed and rushed back by ship. He had good reason. He had married a young Khoikhoi woman in 1803, and Cape society was beginning to take unkindly to love across the colour line. Johannes van der Kemp also had reason, as he had fallen in love with a slave girl he had met while at the Cape, awaiting his return to Bethelsdorp. He bought her freedom, along with her entire family, his mother-in-law and her four children, and was now hankering after the freedom of the frontier. First, however, they had to navigate their relationship with a new governor, and he was a contradiction in terms. I lived in the house in Kyler Street in Grahamstown in the mid-1980s, and had no idea that the street was named after the first British Landros of Judenhaeg. And he was an American. So an American was the first British Landros of the Eastern Cape in the 19th century. Strange. Just thought you should know. Calling him an American may have upset Jacob Kyler, however. He was an American loyalist, devoid of enlightenment sentiment, an arrogant man who was vindictive and who would lose his temper with anyone who opposed him. 
When searching for an officer to appoint to the frontier, Sir David Baird specified someone in whose judgment, discretion, knowledge of the Dutch language and conciliatory temper, a just reliance can be placed. Basically, everything that Kyla was not, except that he could speak Dutch. Furthermore, said Baird, the task for this officer would be to preserve relations between the black nation and this colony, and to watch over and conciliate the conduct of the Boers and Hottentots towards our government and to each other. Jacob Kyler was a young and tested man of 29 or 32, depending on which biography you read, when he was approached about the job. He hailed from Albany, New York in America. The Dutch bit came with a qualifier. He was fourth generation of Dutch origin. But the Kylers did continue to speak their origin language, including young Jacob. Kyler's father and grandfather served successively as mayors of Albany in New York, and the great-grandfather, Abraham Kyler, had fought with the Loyalists against the American revolutionaries. Because he was a commissioned colonel in the Loyalist militia, he had lost his property confiscated by the rebels. Then Abraham fled to Canada, where the British made him a judge. When Jacob was in his teens, he joined the British army, seeking revenge, we all think. Bereft of his inheritance and now the proud owner of a large chip on his shoulder, he rose to the rank of captain in the infantry of the Line Regiment, the 59th. In 1805, Jacob Kyler found himself assigned to General Sir David Baird's force, which sailed for the Cape. He took a bizarre and macabre reminder of America with him, a tombstone carved with his name and place of birth. It symbolized his rage about his family and how it had been treated by those American revolutionaries who stole his land and cast him into a financial abyss. All of this was very unfortunate for our missionaries, Van Kemp and Reed. Kyler's rage would descend on them like a towering Midwest tornado. The reality back at Bethelsdorp was one of poverty and bleakness, which is interesting because this little London Missionary Society village would be at the heart of the creation of anti-colonial sentiment and there's a direct link between Bethelsdorp and today's ruling ANC. But that story will evolve through the next few dozen episodes. The Batavians had moved Bethelsdorp from its original location close to water to a bleak and waterless plain a few kilometres outside Algoa Bay. Misery was inherent after Janssen's personally ordered the new location to be a site eight miles from the bay and within a day's travel from Fort Frederick. There was no water and the land grant covered an area around ten miles in circumference. It was also covered in small bushes suitable for cattle and sheep but completely useless for agriculture. It was barren, and James Reed believed it was chosen specifically because it was so barren to make it impossible for the missionaries to operate. The truth is contested on that score, but what is not contested is that Bethelsdorp lies slap-bang in the intermediate climatic zone between the winter rainfall of the Western Cape and the summer rainfall of the Zürfeld in the Eastern Cape. When it did rain, it was a short, sharp torrent that destroyed the few planted crops and flooded the huts, collapsed the walls. Reed writes that, For many months we had neither bread nor meat. A little milk and water for breakfast and tea, perhaps a little sour milk for dinner, and some wild roots or berries when the old Hottentot women came home from the fields in the afternoon. And yet, These were among the happiest days of my life, he said. Reed by now had children with his koi-koi wife. They were living far from the prying eyes of the Cape Cosmopolitan, and of course Van de Kemp was living with his wife, now nineteen years old, 
she was about to bear her first child, and he'd married her at 17. She was Madagascan. These marriages had incensed the colonists of various language groups, Dutch and English, French and German. They'd shifted from their belief in the old laissez-faire attitude to Trekboer life, where Koi and Amakosa women were married to Trekboer men. The subsequent generations of Dutch began to become more fixed in their lives and more fixed in their loves. Reed's marriage had been justified by the London Missionary Society as an example of the Koi Koi to abide with their wives and not to leave or change them as their custom is. But for the colonists, the marriages of the Koi Koi maiden and the ex-slave teenage Madagascan reflected what they saw as the missionary's plan of what now right-wing Americans call replacement theory. These white missionaries were selling out their skin colour. What horrors would arise, thought the Trekboers and the codpiece-flashing British officials who entertained themselves in the multiracial fleshpots of Cape Town when they needed to. Without the koi-koi on the farms, the Cape and its garrisons suffered severe shortages of meat, and they also provided the commanders with vital auxiliary duty. As Kyler and other colonial officials began to complain to London about the actions of the missionaries, there emerged something which was to continue for the next 200 years. This was the active vigilance over affairs at the Cape by the humanitarian movement in Britain, particularly the abolitionists. The consequence of this would be felt particularly strongly in the first three decades of the 19th century. Right now we must halt for the night, unsaddle the horses, brush them down, because next episode, former soldier and now missionary Funder Kemp was going to start what turned into a running ideological battle with the American called Kyla and the Boers. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the inclination. To contact me, you can head off to my website, desmondlatham.blog or desmondlatham.com or direct message me on Twitter at deslatham. Until next, au revoir.